So one of the problems, I guess, is like when you have like 10 people, if you make, if you make a rule that says everyone can do this, then actually this has to be very low risk because otherwise you're multiplying everything by 10. I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth and Mission. That was Jessica Watson, who lives at the Manor of Being, a San Francisco intentional living space where 11 people share meals, values, and the desire to help each other live more fulfilling lives. But what happens to a commune when a pandemic strikes? Chronicle reporter Annie Weinstein has the inside story on life at the Manor of Being during the COVID-19 pandemic. Annie Weinstein, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You have a really fascinating story out now that's very San Francisco. It's about a group of mostly tech workers and artists who live in an intentional living space called the Manor of Being. And you're looking at how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected their communal lives and how they're negotiating all these weird questions we're all negotiating. So first, can you kind of describe what an intentional community is for people who aren't familiar with that phrase? Yes. So an intentional community is a group of people who live together and most of the time they didn't know each other before, but they've set specific intentions for what they want for the community of their living situation. So the idea is they're aligned with each other around a few specific kind of values and different intentional communities. Um, They're kind of similar to co-ops or communes have different intentions. So for the manner of being This is 11 folks. Um, Some of them knew each other before. Some of them have just met randomly through Craigslist or um, online. Mm -hmm. And the values that are important for them are personal growth, direct communication, which is the case for a lot of kind of co-op-y living situations, and spontaneity. Or those were the values, intentions that um, one of the co-founders told me when he described um, what was important to him for Mm -hmm. the manner of being and all the people who would live there. Mm -hmm. So it's like a large group of roommates but who have a lot more um, discussions about their values and, and how their day-to-day life will function than typical roommates. Yeah. And I think it's also a kind of filtering out of not only are they going to have a commune type co-op lifestyle where they share things and have meal plans and house meetings and all the kinds of things that other typical kind of SF housing situations don't have, mm-hmm. but also kind of the very specific things. So for this group, they're they're really aligned around um, kind of the spiritual, the mystical, and especially this idea. And it comes up a lot during the piece of of personal growth and kind of psychological health. So they have like a internal family systems book club, and mm. you know they talk about intergenerational trauma. Kind of you know they have these kind of this kind of easy. Um, sort of shared cultural language that I think is not um, exactly, you know, maybe the intention of other intentional communities in the city, at least. Mm -hmm. And I got the impression from your piece that you actually visited the Manor of Being, right? I, you know, I actually didn't, but I did. You did a good uh, job of making it seem like you did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I mean, I, I I did visit it virtually. So, okay. You know, I looked at the outside, um, Google Maps and and then they took me on a house um a house tour so oh, I mean it was kind of hard okay, kind of hard to see but yeah it's um uh you know it it kind of felt like I was there inside yeah. so can you describe what you saw and and what it's like inside the manner of being yeah so um there's actually a lot inside um from the outside it wouldn't it wouldn't look like it but it's a seven bedroom kind of multi-story compound of 
uh, a lot of sort of Jack and Jill type of rooms. So like a bunk room that you have to walk through to get to another room and these sort of shared spaces on each floor. They have um, multiple living rooms. Um, they have staircases that kind of also double as like sort of leisure areas, like they're big enough to kind of, um, they all sit on the stairs and there's like guitar collections around. And I think one of the kind of hallmark spaces of the house is um, this uh, pa- kind of palace of uh, pillow forts. Mm-hmm. And um, it's basically an area for cuddling that they call squish. Uh-huh. Um, and unfortunately, it was one of the victims of the pandemic. They had to convert it to a co-working space, oh. but they're sort of, um, they're restoring it in a different way. Uh, on the first floor, they're calling it a play dungeon and that will be like a house sort of movie theater and we'll have a ball pit. So there's this, you know, the, it kind of reflects some of the house, the house values of like play and, you know, uh, psychological connection and closeness and intimacy. Hmm. Well, let's pause here to listen to one of the residents of the Manor of Being, Elliot Verdusco. You know, many of the people that live there are used to, they either currently or have in the past worked in tech, specifically Mm -hmm. in large, you know, just quite a few like large organizations. Mm -hmm. And so they're used to sort of being kind of a cog in a big machine. And Mm. so we have really, really good meetings. So how did Elliot and the other 10 people cope initially when the coronavirus started making the news in the beginning of the year? So kind of like, you know, Verdusco said, many of them have, you know, either currently or did in the past work in tech. So a lot of them responded, you know, the house as a whole, I guess, responded in the way that people who are used to sort of working in like a very um, synchronized uh, space with like organization and this kind of startup like functioning would respond. They, you know, they, they did so by like making a lot of documents, by making a plan, by trying to like be, you know, ahead of everyone else. So even before San Francisco had called for a shelter in place, they were already like looking to other community houses and startups for basically examples of like a contingency plan. Um, and it was it was through that research that they like tried to figure out their triggers. So at first they said that, you know, when cases in San Francisco would reach a thousand, they would do this. Um, but sort of, you know, it all kind of, I think we remember that in the beginning of March, it all sort of uh, became, you know, kind of crept up on us really quickly. And I think the same happened for them. So they pretty, pretty, soon after just shifted to like a full lockdown. Mm -hmm. And um, most of us either live alone or with a couple of roommates or with their families, but living in a pod of 11 unrelated people posed unique challenges for them. So how did the group cope when the virus got more serious and the shelter in place rules were initiated by the mayor in mid-March and, you know, life got a lot more confusing and serious, you know, for all of us? Yeah. Um, Well, I think logistically, the way that they coped um, was to, you know, sort of take the matter into their own hands. They were sort of like functioning as a kind of microcosm of of what the city, I guess, was trying to do by closing down things, you know, sort of creating this like hermetic seal around their house. Um, And so logistically, they they coped by, you know, they assigned they kind of created a task force for the house. They called themselves uh, SARS, a play on SARS-CoV-2, where there was a research czar. 
Um, there was a medical czar who was like procuring medicine and trying to make a DIY ventilator. <laughs> wow. Um, there was stocking up. They had like two months worth of emergency food supplies. So like on that level, uh, I guess on the rational sort of like act- action level, they were coping by just like really trying to fight it in some way and protect each other. But I think, um, you know, emotionally there were different waves and, because there were so many competing concerns and desires and just risk um, comfortabilities as would be expected in like a group of 11 people. Um, I think, you know, it, it got, it got pretty, it got pretty difficult. And I think in the very beginning when they were meeting every single day to talk about coronavirus and having these stand up meetings, um, it got to be too much. So eventually yeah. they put a taboo on talking about coronavirus unless you had consent. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounded like from your piece that the first couple of months went pretty well and then things kind of went downhill and people were getting frustrated with having to vote on every action that anybody else wanted to take. So can you tell me what happened from there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, kind of like maybe I would say for most of us, um, even in the first few months, there were these kind of waves of frustration or like uh, discord and harmony. Um, I think that but but I think in the first couple of months, they were really distracted by like the kind of cognitive dim- gymnastics of what they had to do to quarantine in the safest way. And this is a group that is like very cerebral, very brainy. You know, they have a lot of uh, information and um you know, have a lot of experience doing this kind of like statistical modeling in in their work life. So um, it pretty easily extended to the way that they were handling the coronavirus. But I think eventually like the realities of quarantine, that they were a closed pod, um, all of all of the people who had partners, those partners moved in, which kind of gives you a sense of, um, you know, how how strict they were and how closed they were. Um, And also the fact that they didn't really have access to the elements kind of of their lives that had really attracted them to one another. Um, You know, they're a very social house. They always had people staying over and kind of cuddling in the squish room and, you know, um, and like visitors coming to and from. And it was like a very kind of revolving door kind of space. And so now when they were just with each other, there was all this kind of friction and a lot of like cognitive overhead that I think just... Uh, manifested in small ways like it does, you know, dishes and transgressions Mm -hmm. and coronavirus scares and just all of that, I think, created a really back and forth experience for a lot of for the group as a whole. Yeah, you had one scene that I loved where somebody didn't do their dishes and then it was this big drama because, you know, it is more of a problem, I guess, to not wash the stuff you've been eating with during a pandemic than it would be normally. So little things became bigger it sounded like. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so you described one of their weekly meetings and how they would vote on, um, like, I think somebody wanted to go to a friend's house and somebody wanted to go see their family and then everybody has to vote. And what was that like? Yeah. Um, so when I, when I virtually attended, you know, I was just like a zoom, uh, disembodied head on the (laughs) table watching watching them um this was when they were just at the beginning of they were kind of in this like straddling these two systems one was what they had done for the first four months which was that basically everything was 
banned more or less and that anything they wanted to do that would be outside of the norm. And the norm is like they could do masked walks with people, I think. But um, anything else, you know, they would have to vote on and they would vote by majority. So um, for this meeting, they were, you know, they were sitting down different from their stand-up meetings of of March and April. Um, And the meeting was, you know, quite long and quite dense. They um, had, it was pretty organized too. They, the member leading it had suggested like cue cards for questions so that there wouldn't be as many interruptions. Like they, they would just write their questions on the cue cards and wait, you know, until the end to talk about them. But obviously that didn't exactly work out. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, they were just trying to decide on like one thing, which was, do they feel comfortable even trying a trial version of this calculator, which becomes kind of a the the central theme of this piece, this new system that they were debating. Um, and it was really, really difficult for them to reach consensus and even to just like uh, communicate kind of clearly about it. Um, the conversation was really kind of tangled. Um, and I think it it was in in some ways like a representation of, I think the the you know, the confusion and and that overhead, that cognitive overhead mm-hmm. that they've that had sort of plagued this house for all of these months. Yeah. Um, going back to the beginning of what you just said, why did some, just out of curiosity, why were some meetings stand-up meetings and then other meetings they were allowed to sit down? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, um, it, in the beginning, they tried, because they were, like, this house was trying to optimize, basically, like, the best way to do everything. So they were, like, optimizing their quarantine. They were optimizing their, um, you know, coronavirus safety, and they're also optimizing their meetings. And so a lot of them having come from this tech background, um, I guess the stand-up meetings are more productive because they are like exhausting and people don't <laughs> wow. stand for as long, which is actually, I didn't know that, but it makes a lot of sense. Huh. So in the beginning, they were doing these stand-up meetings. And I think once uh, the daily, once the cadence of the meeting schedule shifted from daily to weekly, um, I think then they also kind of realized that maybe it would just be better better to sit down. <laughs> I wonder if our Chronicle meetings would go faster if we had to stand up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to try it. It'll be a long time until we probably can all stand up together, but <laughs> we'll have to try it when we get back. Yes. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth in Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. How did you find this house and this story in the first place? I found the house um, through Facebook. I kind of like we were thinking, we were wondering sort of how would an intentional community, um, how would kind of like a big, big group of people navigate who, you know, who aren't a family navigate the coronavirus. And I found it just from like, I think I just searched intentional community Mm. in Facebook. And then I came up on a housing post and there were quite a few different like intentional communities or people who call themselves that on Facebook. But this one appealed to me because they had this long document that was it's mentioned in the story, but it was 50 pages describing like their own their the house, like describing what the house was like, describing the values, um, describing the interests of each member, like basically their contingency plan for coronavirus. Like it was clear to me that um they had been thinking really, you know, had done a lot of work. And so had also had a lot of experience kind of 
dealing with the organization of quarantine. Um, so that's how I found them. And were they pretty receptive to you following their story? Or I would think that it would be maybe yeah. the subject of its own stand-up meeting. Yeah, no, I'm sure they discussed me <laughs> in a stand-up meeting. Um, and I'm, I I hope that they did because it probably, <laughs> I hope that they voted on major, by majority for me and that not that many, that there weren't <laughs> that many um, hands. Um, but I, I think that they were... Um, I think that probably some of them are more interested or open than others. I mean, there was there was one member who didn't want to talk to me at all, which mm-hmm. is totally okay. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, I think once they started talking to me, and I, I spent like a fair amount of time with each person. Um, so I think that that felt a little bit better for them to feel like they um, just kind of got to know me individually before I like sat in on a house meeting. Mm-hmm. Um I think more and more of them started to become interested as kind of like they understood what the story was about, which was really kind of just like looking at them as kind of a microcosm of what we're trying to do in as a society. And I think that's and the wit and all the work that they've put into it. And so I think that it became interesting for them as well, hopefully. Yeah. So now they've adopted a risk calculator, which I found really interesting, where everybody gets 250 risk points. Is it per month? Yes, yes, per month. And then each activity has a different number of points associated with it. So they can decide how they want to divide up their own personal points. And it doesn't need a vote as long as they have more points in their piggy bank, right? Yes. Yeah. And so. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but some of the activities and risk points, like just on the surface, didn't really make a lot of sense. Like some um, seemed like they would take way more points than they should or vice versa. So how do you know how they came up with the, you know, each activity and the points associated with it initially? Yeah. So, um, so this calculator, it was developed not by the manner of being, but by this other community house that they're kind of close with called the Bashu. And, um, this house is full of people who do this kind of thing for a living. Mm. Um, and, you know, and have a lot of background in statistics and and risk modeling. So they were basically using the last few months as like a experimenting with this calculator and with like risk budgeting on a small scale. Um, It only recently became public as like a project that you can look at online. Um, But how the points are developed is basically um, there. So every activity, like something like going grocery shopping is kind of awarded a micro uh, COVID, a set of micro COVID points. And those points are developed based on a series of different factors. And if you go, you can all, everyone can look at this online, but the different factors are like the, the different, yeah, variables in, in the experience, in the mm-hmm. activity. So for grocery shopping, it would be, um, you know, how far away you are from other people. How long are you grocery shopping? What kind of mask are you wearing? Um, there's other things like um, what city you're grocery mm. shopping in. Like it all depends. So all of these different, I guess, different variables um, are developed based on like the numbers that they've gotten for the risk factor of each of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's kind of, com- you know, it's collapsed into a, a point value. Um, so, but I, but I think actually it's interesting, Heather, that you said that um, some of the activities were kind of, you know, perplexing, like, why is this so much more than this? And I think, and I definitely felt the same way. Like some examples are, um, 
Like an outdoor masked hangout with two people is two points, but an indoor unmasked hangout with two people who mostly self-isolate is 45 points. But then if you just do an indoor unmasked hangout with two people who, you know, don't mostly self self-isolate, that goes up to 375 yeah. points. So I think that those changes, um, and I should say that like, this isn't a system that's, you know, it's, it's not like, this is a group of, of young people who have backgrounds in this, but it's, you know, it's not official in yeah. any way. It's and not so, like from the department of public health or anything. Totally. Yeah. So I think it should be like looked at from a grain with many grains of salt. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it does get at these like cognitive biases that we have, like, you know, I think for me personally, like I feel less scared going grocery shopping than I do, you know, um, going inside indoors with, with, um, with two, you know, masked with two people mm -hmm. and they're, you know, similar number of points. So I think this is kind of what the house was. This is what led them to the calculator was that everybody had these cognitive biases and these like backgrounds that they were coming from and they wanted a standardized system for figuring out what was more or less risky. Yeah. I was wondering if you think risk calculators are useful for, you know, all of us, not just those who are living in intentional living spaces, but um, could a single person use it or a family? And do you think this will become a trend as we all are learning that we're probably going to have to um, live like this for perhaps another year? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard to say if it, if it will become a trend just because even like, even using the risk calculator as this as this kind of story shows is is not easy at all. Like it it seems like, you know, it seems like it would be an easy thing, but in fact it's actually quite complicated and um and and it and it could potentially lead to, you know, it it has its risks, you know. Um and and some of the people, you know, some of the folks in the house were were pretty concerned about the budget calculator. You know, they they thought that it was maximizing risk rather than minimizing risk. Mm. And so that's definitely one perspective. Um, we'd have to just kind of see how it goes for this group of people. Um, but I, I do think when I think about that, I I mean, I think that what is kind of what it, what does seem true is that we're all still six months in I think really struggling to understand exactly like what, what on a granular, granular level, like what things are risky and what things aren't. I think we know like a couple things, like we know that we should wear masks mm -hmm. and that outdoors is better. But I think we're still seeing people struggle with these questions of like, should I go to this wedding and should I take this flight and all of these things. And I think it's very difficult to rank them in our minds. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, I do think, um, I don't know, I find myself thinking like we shouldn't have to resort to these calculators like that isn't our role. I think mm -hmm. it, it speaks to like the way that we've been left really to fend for ourselves yeah. um, for something that should have been done on an institutional level. And I think there's a great harm that can come from that power being in our hands, even as it also is a great example of like the um, the intention, you know, that mm -hmm. people are putting into trying to make the world safe for them and for other people. So I think there's this two-sidedness to it. And we'll just have to see if other people adopt the calculators too. Yeah. One last question I have about the risk calculator that just occurred to me is, um, can you bank your points? Like, can you not leave the house for six months and then do something wild and crazy? <laughs> 
That, I mean, that's a good question. <laughs> I think, I think like, I think probably, but I, I guess it would still have to be something that falls under your number of well, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I probably should follow up with them. But I mean, one of, <laughs> you can one report of the back. house, yeah, one of the housemates kind of did that, like, or she did it vice versa, where she went, um, she basically like went to not to Burning Man, but there was like a unofficial Burning Man event um, in the desert on the weekend of Burning Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she went, it was 150 points and she just told the rest of her housemates that she would be, you know, really careful for the rest of the month. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's kind of like a medium example of that kind of banking. But yeah. um, that I think that, Heather, is a great example <laughs> of like where it could start to get really tricky and like really scary is if like people are banking and then doing crazy, crazy things yeah. that are extremely expensive and then the house goes into debt. So, yeah, um, we'll see. Cool. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me today. It's a fascinating subject. Thanks for having me on. Let's close out the show by hearing from one last resident of the Manor of Being, Ninoa Kamangar. The whole equilibrium of the house would be thrown off mm. if we decided to start optimizing for sameness in the house rather mm. than diversity. We probably would have less conflict, but we'd also have less growth. We would just be kind of boring, honestly. <laughs> Thank you to Annie Weinstein for joining me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. 